been paying attention to everything that's surrounding us, you would not notice that it's it's the season again, right? It's the holiday season, it's the Christmas season. Tis the season. Um, it's marked by the fact that the Red Cups are back at Starbucks. Um, the, the music is up on the airways. And the movies are up um, on Netflix. Love Actually is my wife's favorite movie, and it's a Christmas movie, and so it is, it's part of our, what, what, what gets shown on the screens. Um, everybody has their own, like, Christmas patterns and cultural, nostalgic, I mean, who drinks eggnog? That's the most disgusting thing in the world. But I think people drink eggnog, right? They, uh, you, you can tell the lights are up in the neighborhoods and at the places. Santa has found his place in the malls, and so on and so forth. Well, this is, for many of us, a very common experience, one that we've gone through many, many years. This is my 49th year. Um, and I was trying to re re reflect on, what is my experience of Christmas? What is my experience of this time? And I couldn't remember my first Christmas. Who remembers your first Christmas? I had the hardest time of like, oh. It wasn't that my parents didn't. It was just, it's kind of like this season melds together. I have very strong memories of my dad's choir director, and we had to sing and perform hymns for the church as a family. Okay? It's only the stuff that you suffer through that you remember. Okay? Stuff like that. Um, I don't actually, I remember caroling, I remember Christmas trees, I remember this kind of stuff in here. That, I don't even remember my presents. It's really weird. Um, I just have this kind of sense that this is a special season that I should look forward to, that many, many of you. If you ask kids, in fact, most kids will say, if you ask them, what is your most favorite time of the year, and they would say, it's this season, right? Um, for some of us, this is actually an exciting time, it's a fun time, but for others of us, it's like, okay, not again. We get to go through this uh, another round, and in fact, this is my 49th year, and so um, uh, I've, I've done this uh, a bit. My parents have always practiced Christmas, but it wasn't as if this is uh, something that I said, I don't know what they left me. I don't know what's like at the core of what Christmas is. I actually didn't even realize that there was more to Christmas than simply some of these cultural things, even in the church. Uh, a lot of us actually recognize that it's not just a season where there are things to buy and things to experience and to eat and parties to go to, but actually this is a religious season. And not only for us. Uh, people have made this season of the year a high point in the context of religion. Joyous Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy Ramadan, and so on and so forth. Diwali has just happened not too long ago. This is a time when people actually associate, for whatever reason, associate celebration and hope at the darkest time, at the winter solstice. It's happened before as well. Why is it that, interestingly enough, the, the time when most retailers make the most of their money during this season, not all seasons of the, of, the, of the year, that we actually tie it even with a religious concern or celebration. Why is it that this season is marked not just by recognizing Jesus as the reason for the season, and I know it's kind of very, very cliche, but it is a season marked by consumerism. Um, whether you're shopping online, or you actually found your ways to the mall, um, you're going to be swamped these next few weeks. Advertisements, sales, um, 
every sign that says you should be excited, you should be happy. Um, but as I reflect on my years as a Christian and years as a person, I'm realizing, wow, some of this stuff gets really empty. I don't know about are you, are you tired of Christmas season? Oh, not again. Um, it's nice. Sometimes it brings back good memories of hearth and home. It brings back memories of, especially if you have a good childhood, you're really happy about it. But after a while, especially if you're a single person, it gets tiring and maybe it's exciting for a little while. And then if you're a young parent, you get really exhausted. Because you do all this for your kids and they don't appreciate it. And you're like, oh, you're so tired. You're tired in general, but then you get even more tired, right? Well, at least you get the joy of watching your kids enjoy Christmas. When they grow up a little more, and they're jaded too, what do you got left? What do you got left? Um, I'm in a place where I'm asking that question more and more these years. I'm like, oh no, not another Christmas season, not another holiday season. What's here for me to really pay attention to? What meaning is there in this season? How do I go through without simply just enduring mindlessly the, the mind-numbing and, and the wallet-draining drain, wallet experience of the season. And I'm realizing it's been there the whole time. That this intentionally was a season in which the church chose to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we're going to walk through a little of what that means and walk through a little of what can we do this season, not only just to find meaning, but actually live it well. Live it in worship. Live it in discipleship. Because this season really is about God coming in the flesh, into our lives, into the world, into the mess. And it's the game changer of all game changers. Starting the process by which everything is going to change. There is a reason why, not only is this time of the year chosen, but why Christmas is so significant. So this is my 12th Advent series. Okay, and I'll explain what Advent is in just a bit. It's the four Sundays before Christmas that we spend time thinking about and preparing our hearts for Christ. Advent means the coming or the coming one, the coming of Christ. It's my 12th series. I'm reflecting on this. I have a, if I asked anybody for the, for the life of them, do you remember what I preached on these last 12 years? Um, I think I would, if, I, if I made a bet with you that you would owe me 10 bucks each if you remembered, I think I, I would come away with a rich man. <laughs> Um, it's partly because this is a mind-numbing season for some reason. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, yeah, what have I preached over these 12 years? And we've gone through a lot, gone through quite a bit. Um, but more and more, I'm realizing um, that the gospel story, the story of how Christ comes, what happens, what is being presented, who is being confronted, is actually so meaningful, so relevant, even in my life as well. I spent a lot of years trying to, you know, unentangle or even kind of tear down some of the cultural ideas of what Christmas is. I remember as a young parent, we chose to not tell our kids there's a Santa. Our kids never grew up knowing there was a Santa. The Santa was real. Isn't that sad? We robbed them of a, of a Santa experience. Um, we always told them Christmas is about Jesus' birthday. It's not about this guy who is um, this old man dressed in red clothes, happy and jolly, who knows all that you have done, is coming into town, and who is going to treat you well if you've done well, but give you a coal in your stocking if you've done bad. Um, that actually, I've gone through this whole process, that Santa is not actually a Christian view. They try to meld it with this guy in Turkey, St. Nicholas, who gave gifts during the season out of love, but actually, no, it's, you know, it's, it's actually a Norse 
God who rides a sleigh and he brings gifts. This is a Norse myth that we've just kind of stuck in together. I've even done sermons like this. Santa is Satan. I haven't really, but kind of, right? Because look at, look at the spelling. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I realized, you know, trying to make a cultural war doesn't really get us to really make Christmas meaningful. You can't make something meaningful by telling you what not to do. Don't focus on this, don't focus on this, don't focus on this. In fact, Advent is less about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. It's more about do this. Pay attention to who Christ is. When he comes, how he comes, why he comes. And in all these ways, as a preparation, he is going to come again. That there's this understanding as you look at these stories that the people of God, the religious elites even, were not ready when at the perfect time Jesus came. The perfect time didn't look like the perfect time in a lot of people's eyes. Yes, they were in big trouble. Life was a mess for everybody around. But that's actually the perfect time Jesus comes and shows up and he enters into our midst. And he doesn't just fix it in a blink of an eye and run away. He lives a full human life. And at the perfect time, he, he, he goes through the full expression of what it's going to take to win us back and to free us. So the Christians knew this about Jesus' coming. But they didn't necessarily know exactly when Jesus was born. Okay. So we know when Jesus died on the cross because it's tied with Passover. That's a pretty that's a pretty good idea of when Jesus died. That, that's kind of that's something you can go all the way back to. But there are no exact references to when Jesus was born. Um, there's no timing context. Well, the fact that the shepherds are out in the fields and it looks as though they're sleeping out in the fields, that kind of tells you that maybe it wasn't winter time. It's very possible Jesus wasn't born most likely in the winter time. Why did we choose the end of December to say, this is the time that we celebrate Jesus was born? It was an intentional choice, not right away by the church, but along the way, because they saw that the people at this time were practicing this thing called, in the Roman context, Saturnalia. It, it was a festival to the god Saturn, which is kind of like their, um, their Zeus figure, right? Uh, this God was actually uh, kind of a big picture uh, God in their context. And in the midst of this, they would at first do kind of the benign forms. They would do role reversals. They would have kind of fun. They would do some gambling. They would, but actually over the course of time, it became very violent. It became, um, everybody was just exercising all of their desires and their appetites in, in excess. And the church realizing People are doing this for a reason. They're freaking out. It's getting darker and darker and darker. They're looking to either medicate themselves or give them some kind of material hope. And this is the time when the world is getting messier, more violent, more excessive, that the church decided to say, hey, this is a great time that we go in the exact opposite direction and we focus on the coming of Christ, how he comes, and how we can prepare so we're going to talk about this in just a bit, but the three practices of righteousness that the church always expressed was prayer. While people are partying, the church is praying. While people are, are just um, gorging, the church is fasting. And while people are taking, they're giving. 
And so um, we're going to be doing this again and again each Advent to remind ourselves how do we make the season about Christ? Part of it is this is how we emphasize, look for, and intentionally look after Christ during these next four Sundays. This year, as I was praying about, what, what do I preach about? Um, we've gone through lots of different series. You know, the four candles of Advent, Christ brings joy, hope, love, peace, and so on and so forth. We've talked about all kinds of things. We've done Advent conspiracy. We've walked through these three acts of righteousness. We've done all kinds of things. But this year, something kind of reflecting on this. I don't know why, but um, the, the sense that Christ came in the time of our mess is making a lot of sense to me. He chose this time to enter into the world and enter people's lives when things were in crisis. And in fact, when we look at when we look at the story, him and his own family, Mary and Joseph, and his own life as a baby, all the way through was a time when he experienced profound vulnerability. He didn't come into a place of exaltation and comfort and privilege and power. He came, uh, and right from the get-go, uh, in, in a place of vulnerability. I think there's a reason for that. There's a reason why that's included. It's to actually tune us to those who are looking to Christ and feeling a sense of crisis and a vulnerability in their own lives, as well as those who are aware that Christ is looking to, caring for, coming into the lives of those who are vulnerable. So the series is called To the Vulnerable. And today we're talking about looking at the story. There's a, there's a clear sense that Jesus in his early, in his very coming to the earth, was into a place of vulnerability. That as a human child, knowing his story and his experience, he is going to know what it feels like to be vulnerable. Because he lived it. He lived it from the get-go. And what does that mean to those who are feeling that, even in our context, as well as in the world? Um, next week, we're going to talk about what it means to care for and extend some personal touch to the vulnerable through hospitality. Um, going back to the stories again. And we're going to look at just uh, a few other things as we're reflecting on what does it mean that Christ came and comes to the vulnerable. Let's jump, jump into the scripture as we look at looking at uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 verse 7. And uh, Luke is actually a historian. I don't know if you know this, but uh, if you really care. But he actually is doing very good historiography. He's doing it in the form that people know. Um, he's, he's locking it in with the historical context. And um, in this setting, he says, in, in those days, right around Jesus' birth time, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So this is um, a historical fact. This is what's going on. In Rome at that time, they had a thing called Pax Romana, where it looks as on the surface that things are great. In fact, Caesar took, they, they, they took the, uh, the claim that, look, we have solved the big conflict of the world, and because the Roman Empire is, is at peace, there's not a huge war, it's telling you that Caesar is the Lord and Savior. That was the line they were trying to feed people. Well, yes, on the surface, there wasn't a huge war, but there was a mess quite a bit around. The census usually is taken as a military census, as a way of saying, okay, I need to be ready if I want to start a war, if I need to go ahead and protect ourselves. So that's, that's, the, that's the reminder. It's kind of like, um, we didn't grow up with a selective service. I never got drafted, right? right? I mean, most of us are young enough. It's we have a volunteer army. If there ever was a threat and we have to do a draft, it would change people's idea of, ooh, this is scary. 
Well, in obviously in their time, in this place, they're not going to do a census for the Jewish men to go into the war. Um, but it was just a reminder, they're ready to go, they're preparing. And on top of that, the census in this area was made for taxes. They're actually going to barrel down, they're going to take, and they're going to squeeze. So this is a reminder that people of God, living in Israel, they're oppressed by foreign power, and they're going to run to squeeze. Personally, for the people uh, in this story, Joseph and Mary, the rule was you had to go to your hometown and you had to register. So we know Joseph and Mary was up in Nazareth. Okay? And Nazareth is a great place. Nazareth, actually, if you look carefully, uh, it was the armpit of that area of, of uh, the Middle years. Think about it, it's like the, the place where all the losers and all the deadbeats are. Um, so I always try to think about where in New York City is the armpit of New York City, and they used to say something on Staten Island, but I don't know if that still applies anymore. Um, New Jersey, I don't know, sorry, New Jersey people, right? Um, New Jersey, right? But uh, think of the place where everybody associates as there's no hope there. I actually pastored the town called Tacoma, which was the armpit of the Pacific Northeast, uh, Northwest, uh, for, for about six years. And that they call it the, that a bad place because if you look at all of the records of violent crimes and unemployment and depression and so on, mental health, they put it all together and Tacoma won. <laughs> so uh, that's a place of crisis. So he, his parents were from that place, okay? A mess, a mess of an area. But right as Mary is about to give birth, right before Mary's about to give birth, the census thing comes out of play. And they have to be on the move. If you've ever seen a woman who is about nine months pregnant, we've got some ladies here who are going to burst in just a bit, okay? Can you imagine taking a 90-mile trip on the back of a, of a mule, okay? It's not an easy ride. Not along a nice, easy, straight road, but the topography is they're having to go uphill, up the mountain uh, along the way. 90 miles doesn't seem long if you're flying on uh, uh, um, Jersey Turnpike. But in fact, if you are having to hoof it, that's actually, as a nine-month pregnant woman, that's a scary thing. Um, I remember when uh, Emma was about to be born, we actually tried squeezing the trip to go out east, and when we went to our OB, uh, OB said, no, you cannot fly, uh, you're, you're, my wife is three centimeters dilated at seven months, and we had to, she had to be bed rest for a little while, and actually, he hit home. With all this medicine, I was feeling the vulnerability as a, as a, husband and a father, like, oh my gosh, we can't even just go where we want to go. But that, this is a forced migration. Mary has to get onto this horse, onto this mule, and make her way over rough terrain to get to this town. When they get to the town of Bethlehem, which is not a great town, it's not a big town, it's a small one. When they get there, it's what? It's a small town. It's not a huge space. We hear the story of language of, oh, they went to this inn and that inn, and so on and so forth. They didn't use the word for a big inn. They used the word for a public space, a courtyard. They used the word for maybe a, a place where, you know, sometimes they would, they would house people in, inside a private area, but it's not a, it's not a word describing a, you know, Holiday Inn or a Westin or a Hilton. They didn't have that back then. Um, but basically, when they got to that town, it was so full that they couldn't even find space in the public space. Okay, think about it. They aren't the only ones who are forced into a forced migration. In the midst of this mass of people, she's about to give birth. This is the situation God chooses to birth his son. 
It's not because God didn't do his logistics right. Oh, dang it! If I had just known when he was going to call the census, I wouldn't have done it this way. He chose it this way. To actually help, I think, in the long term, to help Jesus understand the people that he was going to minister to. What they would have experienced. He made it that way so that in some ways, um, yeah, Jesus would know what it's like to, to go through this kind of vulnerability. Mary and Joseph did, but also that they got to come through for them. I'm going to also highlight a second kind of vulnerability that they've gone through. Now, it points out here that as they're going, he's bringing his, not his bride, he's bringing this woman that he's engaged to still. They haven't married yet. She's already pregnant. You go to a wedding, and the woman's in a white dress with a big bump on her belly. Usually, you kind of know the chronology of things, right? Um, yeah, everybody knows. Mary is giving birth to a son, and Joseph actually, you know, he could have said, I did not sleep with her and, and just protect his honor, but in fact, they're coming here with this cloud of shame um, to his hometown, to the, his extended relatives. Can you imagine what that must feel like? Now they know, Joseph believes he was meant in the dream, he knows. But still, he's born into this place of illegitimacy. He's a, he's a bastard. That's the term. He is an illegitimate son. Later on, we find out when he goes back to Nazareth, this, this armpit of a place, all the kids call him, you're Mary's son. We know who your mom is, we don't know who your dad is. This is the life. This is a formative experience that Jesus walks into. Um, we've got to pay attention to this. From the beginning, he didn't even have the protection of being a legitimate son. He's born, and his mom actually had to be on the road and give birth to him. They didn't even have a place spared for him. He has to be born in this place where they have animals, and so on and so forth. Well, we see that she gave birth to her first son, uh, firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room. There was no, even a public space or a place that they would allow travelers to be because it's all filled. Um, and so the manger tells you that they were in a place where the animals were. And, um, I've preached sermons before of just how, like, how disgusting it must be and how horrible it was for Mary, who, you know, obviously cares about her personal hygiene, has to put her son into a, a feeding trough for an animal where there's saliva. And I realized, yeah, I kind of overdid it. Pastors, they kind of over-dramatize at times. And they, they give you the, they give you the uh, K-drama version of it. Oh my gosh. Everybody slammed their doors on Mary and Joseph and they're crying. We have no place to go. And they had to go to a place where the animals were and, and it smelled of stink. No, actually they were very comfortable animals. In fact, animals all the time stayed with them. So that's not the issue. What is issue is, um, maybe they had, this is the only private place they could have. But the, what is issue is that, yeah, the major scene tells us and a vivid picture is how vulnerable he was born into. This is not a normal thing. The shepherds are told, go find this child. How will we know he'll be in the manger? Okay? That's how you know. So it gives you an idea of how strange and unconventional this is. He is Shechem. What happens after birth? In the Christmas story, we're told that these magi come, they travel a long way, not a forced migration, but this is actually a request. 
to go and worship the king that was coming. But we don't know exactly the time frame. Later on in the story, you find that, as in the passage in Matthew, you find that um, the Magi come and they give these gifts and they go, but Joseph is told in the dream, get up, take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you before Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. Do you realize what's happening here? He's in Bethlehem still. And that's not enough that he has, he's homeless, that he's stuck, he has no place to go. But then, in fact, in just a bit, you don't know how long, I'm not speculating a bit, they have to run to Egypt because Harry's about to kill them. This is not simply no longer a forced migration. Now they are full-blown refugees, running away from violence. Do you realize this is the story of Jesus? We don't talk about this during Christmas. We talk about a lot of other stuff. We don't actually recognize what he did. His story is a story of a refugee who had no rights, had to run for his life, go to a foreign land of people who don't want them to come. This is not just a theological thing that he's retracing the steps of Israel, but this is a human thing. It's a real thing. Later on, we're told that when Herod hears about this, he gets so angry, he says, wipe out every boy that's two years old, up to two years old. So either Herod is being a little too strong, because he don't know exactly when Jesus was born either, or maybe Jesus was in Bethlehem for a while. Why is he still in Bethlehem? Maybe because they didn't have money to go home. Maybe because they, that his home in Nazareth wasn't there, ready for him. Do you see how Jesus is spending time in Bethlehem and with his parents. We don't know exactly how long. We're going to find out that probably the, the, the way he is able to leave is the gifts from the Magi are extremely valuable. They give him liquid cash to be on the run. But kind of overdoing this a bit to kind of help us historically realize this is a real situation. I haven't been homeless, but there was a time when we were trying to buy our house and we got stuck in a credit crunch. And we walked into the uh, into a extended stay, thinking that our loan would come through. And every day, it wouldn't. Every day we were told it might not come through. Um, all of our stuff was packed away in pods. We only had clothes for a week. We had to spend a month there. But at least we had a roof over our heads. I remember how angry my wife was with me, saying, how could you? Get us stuck like this, I have no home, I, we have to sign up for school, we're in trouble. That was the, just a sliver of what vulnerability might look like. Can you imagine being, just having given birth in that climate to a child, trying to recover, and then sometime along the way, whether it was sooner or later, you find that that child's being targeted. This is not simply this over-dramatized life. This is actually what we're seeing Moments. Did you know this is what's happening in the world now? Forced migrations is actually at one of the highest rates that we can count. By, by our count, by this number, uh, 21.3 million people in the world currently are refugees worldwide. There's a lot of people in the world. 21.3 doesn't sound like that much. Uh, it's not just those who are already refugees had to run away because of forced migration. 1.2 million are still don't have a place. They're living in squalid camps. And interestingly enough, the rich countries 
are actually not housing them. It's the poor countries um, that are taking them in. CBS here, oh, 21 million. What does that make sense of? That's one in every 122 persons in the world. That's not just homeless. And we think homeless are homeless by choice, no, but by the mistakes, no. They're fleeing, whether it's violence or war. Um, it actually makes us begin to realize, hey, if we're paying attention to our world and the gospel story, Jesus being a migrant, being a refugee, wasn't an accident. Our worship of Christ during the season, recognition of when he came, how he came, who he came to and for should pay attention to. Our world is not that much different. In fact, there are many who are experiencing the same thing or worse than Jesus did, even as a young boy. It should make us think about what does it mean for us during this season when we are wanting to be comfortable to have the nice fireplace and the presents and, and have all our families around us and to celebrate the and live some, some excess and some joy to realize there are people who are actually experiencing the same thing Jesus did right around the time of his birth. It should make us think through our own, not only our political or policy understanding of what immigration or refugees, administration of refugees should be, but there's a, there's a process that should be going through our hearts and our minds that, wait, this is how Jesus came into the world. It's not just the story. He experienced it. Can you imagine how formative this must have been for him? To be stuck in Egypt until Herod dies. Okay? To have no home and not know where Satan came and is going, going back to Nazareth. And even that's not the fullest of the safest of places. His life is spent experiencing this vulnerability. I think this is one of the reasons why when he sees a prostitute, he doesn't see a simple woman who deserves what she gets. He sees someone who has been brought into vulnerability. When he sees a leper, he doesn't say, oh, you deserve it because you're cursed of God. He sees that they have no home, they have no community, they have no hope. Something churns in his heart. When he sees a tax collector, who look, on the outside looks like he's doing well, but on the inside, he is a broken person no hope, disconnected with God. He can have compassion on the tax collector because he's grown up identifying with God. This is a season where we have to learn maybe a few steps. What does it mean to identify with the vulnerable? Because that's how he's come. When we look at the scriptures, God calls his people to identify with the vulnerable. The foreigners who are forced to come fleeing most of the time wars and violence. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native born. Can you imagine that? Somebody coming into your place, your home, and speaking different language, having different customs, and they're being told, no, you have to care for them like you're native born, give them full rights of citizenship. He told them, Love them as you love yourself. Why? Because you were once foreigners yourself. You should be able to identify with them. You know what it's like to come into a foreign land, have nothing, have to struggle, and to be hated and to be persecuted, and then to find that God came through for you. 
You should be able not only have compassion for them, you should be able to love them as God loves them. I am the Lord your God. This is an amazing thing. God, who is the most secure and rich and protected person in the universe, still identifies with the woman. Deuteronomy chapter 18. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, the two most vulnerable people in the land, and loves the foreigner, the third most vulnerable, residing amongst you, giving them food and clothing, practical ways of caring for them. And you are not just to give them stuff, you are to love them. Love those who are mourners. Or he's assuming you can identify with them. You yourselves are foreigners. Something should be, should be happening if some of us who have a, a history of immigration. Honestly, I came when I was three years old with $100. My parents brought $100, that's all they could have. And we were in the tenements in Chicago, pretty much Cabrini Green, right from the start. My parents worked themselves to the bone. I was homeless since I was three years old. You know what happens though? You look at an immigrant coming in from a different country and you see them different. You can lose this identification of them in a heartbeat. Especially if you've moved out of that place and now you're in a place of comfort. It is so easy. If you pay attention to God, who even in his place of comfort and of security says, I defend the cause of the Father's will. I am so identified with the plight of one of them. We see it in the very coming of his son. There's a lot of reasons why we can say to ourselves, ah, why, why should we care for the refugees and the people that are, you know, far from us, kind of like the caravan, or in Europe, and so on and so forth? Um, why should we be responsible for people who, you know, we have no time to, and so on and so forth? It'd be easy to kind of look at this mass of people running away, this is just an example, running away from violence in Central America, that they travel together because they're so vulnerable to the gangs in Mexico. This is the only way they can be safe. Okay? But instead, say, oh, they're coming as an attacking, invading army. There's MS-13 in there. There's uh, ISIS in there. And basically say, they, they sh there are all these bad people that are coming to invade our country. Uh, did you realize that the caravan is mostly women and children? And it's not just the caravan. Did you realize that out of all that figure of 122, one out of every 122 people worldwide are refugees. 51% of them are children. Whoa. Okay? It's a change of thinking. Wait a minute. Young children are having to run for their lives, not knowing where water and food is, where there's violence all around them. Yeah. Well, why should we care for them? Right? In fact, that's what this woman says. Her name is Paula White. She does the quote unquote spiritual advice for the president. She was told, she was saying, how come you have these? You know, views on, on um, immigration and refugees. She was asked, didn't Jesus have to run to Egypt? Wasn't he a refugee? This is his, her response. And laughed, because it was just ridiculous. Of course, yes, she knows her Bible. Jesus did live in Egypt for three and a half years, but it wasn't illegal. He hadn't broken the law. If he did, then he would have been uh, sinful, and he would not have been the Messiah. So him going there was not an illegal thing, therefore, let's not even think about it. Because they're just leaders. Jesus would never have done that. He would never have broken the law. That's all we care about. This empty understanding of, wait a minute, how did he come? Why did he come this way? 
But if you ask evangelicals, people who believe in the Bible, okay, and you tell them what kind of responsibility we should have, when they do a poll, 68%, and this is white evangelicals, but it's a certain demographic, when they were asked, do we have some kind of Christian responsibility to actually house refugees, 68% said no. What does that mean? You might say, well, we have responsibility, but I'm not doing anything about it. How do you think Jesus sees our Advent and our Christmas patterns? How does he read our hearts? What we are on about, what we're investing in, what we are consuming our energy and time and pursuits for, especially during this season. I think we need to actually reflect on what this love look like. If Christ came in his love to free us, not just from our sins, but free us to be with his Father, become like his Father, what does love look like? As one person put it, to love someone is identifying them. If you don't know who they are, what they've been through, what they need, how can you love them? I'm not responsible for them. Who is my neighbor? Am I my brother's keeper? That is the response of those who actually have no idea what love looks like. This is the complete opposite of Christ, who has no responsibility to us, out of love, chooses to enter into our defense, and he chooses to identify with us, privy to the sin and the violence of other people, in order to bring us through it. Some of us think that zero tolerance is a godly thing. We have no responsibility to the world around us. But we look at the story of Jesus and realize that's not how he sees it. That's not how he brings it. That's not the season for that. In fact, it's not just we celebrate the birth of Christ that brings us hope and love and joy and peace and speaks into the fact that yes, he's going to go to the cross, but how does he do it? By embracing the most incredible experience of only that he might ever imagine. To be crucified on the cross and be abandoned by his Father for our sake. I think this is the one story that we need to pay attention to during this season. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy and have fun, okay? Um, it, can't, it doesn't mean that you can't watch Love Actually and enjoy it. My wife is going to do that. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't drink eggnog. No eggnog, okay? Uh, no, it means don't worry about what you shouldn't do. Focus on who we're worshiping, who he loves, and include that in your heart time. That's what we're doing this 20-day fasting, every Monday fasting prayer. Um, and emails have gone out uh, if you're part of our email chain. Um, every day we're being reminded we can stretch our hearts to pray. Not only for our personal needs, our family needs, because some of us are feeling extremely vulnerable this period of time. Our church, and our own church's vulnerabilities, um, our neighbors, but actually even people that we would never even begin to want to think about, to pray for, have any responsibility for, including the migrants and the refugees. But this is a way to actually say, I'm going to take a step in wanting to be identified with Christ. I would encourage you, take one step. Listen to the immigrant story. Okay. What they've been through. 
It could be somebody in your own neighborhood, somebody in your own context, who are here now in a place of security, but they went through a horrible, horrible... My parents had to run, my dad had to run during the... When the, when the, when the Chinese came down and, and the North Koreans actually invaded. He, he, tell, he, he has a hard time telling me stories because it was so difficult. But as I listened to his stories, I realized, oh my gosh, this is what it means to be vulnerable. My own dad experienced it. I experienced it in my own context. We do. But how do we begin to let that change the way we see others in their plight? Um, go Google it. Refugee stories. Don't just dehumanize them to say, well, that's them, and I don't have to worry about them. Don't numb yourself. Instead, open up your heart. Ask God to identify you with their stories. That's where God is. That's how he came. That's who he came for. As well as for us. In our place, we were so vulnerable. The attack of the enemy was sin. And he came to free us. But he also came to free who we are. We get to live like him. I want you to bow your heads with me as you pray.